35. Books in the order in which they were written. In the first group of novels Adam Bede is the most natural, and probably interests more readers than all the others combined. The Mill on the Floss has a larger personal interest, because it reflects much of George Eliot's history and the scenes and the friends of her early life. The lack of proportion in this story, which gives rather too much space to the girl and boy experiences, is naturally explained by the tendency in every man and woman to linger over early memories. Silas Marner is artistically the most perfect of George Eliot's novels, and we venture to analyze it as typical of her ideals and methods. We note first the style, which is heavy and a little self-conscious, lacking the vigor and picturesqueness of Dickens, and the grace and naturalness of Thackeray. The characters are the common people of the Midlands, the hero being a linen weaver, a lonely outcast who hoards and gloats over his hard-earned money, is robbed, thrown into utter despair, and brought back to life and happiness by the coming of an abandoned child to his fire. In the development of her story the author shows herself, first, a realist, by the naturalness of her characters and the minute accuracy with which she reproduces their ways and even the accents of their speech, second, a psychologist, by the continual analysis and explanation of motives, third, a moralist, by showing in each individual the action and reaction of universal moral forces, and especially by making every evil act bring inevitable punishment to the man who does it. Tragedy, therefore, plays a large part in the story, for, according to George Eliot, tragedy and suffering walk close behind us, or lurk at every turn in the road of life. Like all her novels, Silas Marner is depressing. We turn away from even the wedding of Epi which is just as it should be with a sense of sadness and incompleteness. Finally, as we close the book, we are conscious of a powerful and enduring impression of reality. Silas, the poor weaver, Godfrey Cass, the well-meaning, selfish man, Mr. Macy, the garrulous, and observant parish clerk, Dolly Winthrop, the kind-hearted countrywoman who cannot understand the mysteries of religion and so interprets God in terms of human love. These are real people, whom having once met we can never forget. Romola has the same general moral theme as the English novels, but the scenes are entirely different, and opinion is divided as to the comparative merit of the work. It is a study, a very profound study of moral development in one character and of moral degeneracy in another. Its characters and its scenes are both Italian, and the action takes place during a critical period of the Renaissance movement. When Savonarola was at the height of his power in Florence, here is a magnificent theme and a superb background for a great novel, and George Eliot read and studied till she felt sure that she understood the place, the time, and the people of her story. Romola is therefore interesting reading, in many respects the most interesting of her works. It has been called one of our greatest historical novels, but as such it has one grievous fault. It is not quite true to the people or even to the locality which it endeavors to represent. One who reads it here, in a new and different land, thinks only of the story and of the novelist's power, but one who reads it on the spot which it describes, and amidst the life which it pictures, is continually haunted by the suggestion that George Eliot understood neither Italy nor the Italians. It is this lack of harmony with Italian life itself which caused Morris and Rossetti and even Browning with all his admiration for the author, to lay aside the book, and able to read it with pleasure or profit. In a word, Rommel is a great moral study and a very interesting book, but the characters are not Italian, and the novel as a whole lacks the strong reality which marks George Eliot's English studies.
minor novelists of the Victorian age in the three great novelists just considered we have an epitome of the fiction of the age, Dickens using the novel to solve social problems, Thackeray to paint the life of society as he saw it, and George Eliot to teach the fundamental principles of morality. The influence of these three writers is reflected in all the minor novelists of the Victorian age. Thus, Dickens is reflected in Charles Reed, Thackeray and Anthony Trollope and the Bronte sisters, and George Eliot's psychology finds artistic expression in George Meredith. To these social and moral and realistic studies we should add the element of romance, from which few of our modern novelists can long escape. The 19th century, which began with the romanticism of Walter Scott, returns to its first love, like a man glad to be home, in its delight over Blackmore's Lorna Doon and the romances of Robert Louis Stevenson, Charles Reed, in his fondness for stage effects, for picturing the romantic side of common life, and for using the novel as the instrument of social reform. There is a strong suggestion of Dickens in the work of Charles Reed 1814-1884, thus his peg is a study of stage life from behind the scenes, a terrible temptation is a study of social reforms and reformers, and put yourself in his place is the picture of a working man who struggles against the injustice of the trades unions. His masterpiece, The Cloister and the Hearth 1861, one of our best historical novels, is a somewhat laborious study of student and vagabond life in Europe in the days of the German Renaissance. It has small resemblance to George Eliot's Romola, whose scene is late in Italy during the same period but the two works may well be read in succession, as the efforts of two very different novelists of the same period to restore the life of an age long past. Anthony Trollope, in his realism, and especially in his conception of the novel as the entertainment of an idle hour, Trollope 1815-1882 is a reflection of Thackeray. It would be hard to find a better duplicate of Becky Sharp, the heroine of Vanity Fair, for instance, than is found in Lizzie Eustace, the heroine of the Eustace Diamonds. Trollope was the most industrious and systematic of modern novelists, writing a definite amount each day, and the wide range of his characters suggests the human comedy of Balzac. His masterpiece is Barchester Towers 1857. This is a study of life in a cathedral town, and is remarkable for its minute pictures of bishops and clergymen, with their families and dependents. It would be well to read this novel in connection with The Warden 1855. The Last Chronicle of Barset 1867, and other novels of the same series, since the scenes and characters are the same in all these books, and they are undoubtedly the best expression of the author's genius. Hawthorne says of his novels, they precisely suit my taste, solid and substantial, and, just as real as if some giant had hewn a great lump out of the earth and put it under a glass case, with all the inhabitants going about their daily business and not suspecting that they were being made a show of. Charlotte Bronte. We have another suggestion of Thackeray in the work of Charlotte Bronte 1816-1855. She aimed to make her novels a realistic picture of society, but she added to Thackeray's realism the element of passionate and somewhat unbalanced romanticism. The latter element was partly the expression of Miss Bronte's own nature, and partly the result of her lonely and grief-stricken life, which was darkened by a succession of family tragedies. It will help us to understand her work if we remember that both Charlotte Bronte and her sister Emily turned to literature because they found their work as governess and teacher unendurable, and sought to relieve the loneliness and sadness of their own lot by creating a new world of the imagination. In this new world, however, the sadness of the old remains, 
and all the Bronte novels have behind them an aching heart. Charlotte Bronte's best-known work is Jane Eyre 1847, which, with all its faults, is a powerful and fascinating study of elemental love and hate, reminding us vaguely of one of Marlowe's tragedies. This work won instant favor with the public, and the author was placed in the front rank of living novelists. Aside from its value as a novel, it is interesting, in many of its early passages, as the reflection of the author's own life and experience. Shirley 1849 and Villa 1853 make up the trio of novels by which this gifted woman is generally remembered. Bulwer-Lytton, Edward Bulwer-Lytton 1803-1873 was an extremely versatile writer, who tried almost every kind of novel known to the 19th century. In his early life he wrote poems and dramas, under the influence of Byron, but his first notable work, Pelham 1828, one of the best of his novels was a kind of burlesque on the Byronic type of gentleman, as a study of contemporary manners in high society. Pelham has a suggestion of Thackeray, and the resemblance is more noticeable in other novels of the same type, such as Ernest Maltraffer's 1837, The Caxton's 1848-1849, My Novel 1853, and Canon Chillingly 1873. We have a suggestion of Dickens in at least two of Lytton's novels, Paul Clifford and Eugene Aram the heroes of which are criminals, pictured as the victims rather than as the oppressors of society. Lytton essayed also, with considerable popular success, the romantic novel in The Pilgrims of the Rhine and Zanoni, and tried the ghost story in The Haunted and the Haunters. His fame at the present day rests largely upon his historical novels, in imitation of Walter Scott, The Last Days of Pompeii 1834, Rita 1835, and Harold 1848 the last being his most ambitious attempt to make the novel the supplement of history. In all his novels Lytton is inclined to sentimentalism and sensationalism, and his works, though generally interesting, seem hardly worthy of a high place in the history of fiction. Kingsley, entirely different in spirit are the novels of the scholarly clergyman, Charles Kingsley 1819-1875. His works naturally divide themselves into three classes. In the first are his social studies and problem novels, such as Alton Locke 1850, having for its hero London Taylor and Poet, and Yeast 1848, which deals with the problem of the agricultural laborer. In the second class are his historical novels, Hereward the Wake, Hypatia, and Westward O. Hypatia is a dramatic story of Christianity in contact with paganism, having its scene late in Alexandria at the beginning of the 5th century. Westward Ho, 1855, his best-known work, is a stirring tale of English conquest by land and sea in the days of Elizabeth. In the third class are his various miscellaneous works, not the least of which is Water Babies, a fascinating story of a chimney sweep, which mothers read to their children at bedtime, to the great delight of the round-eyed little listeners under the counterpane, Mrs. Gaskell, Mrs. Elizabeth Gaskell 1810-1865 began like Kinsley, with the idea of making the novel the instrument of social reform. As the wife of a clergyman in Manchester, she had come in close contact with the struggles and ideals of the industrial poor of a great city, and she reflected her sympathy as well as her observation in Mary Barton 1848 and in North and South 1855. Between these two problem novels she published her masterpiece, Cranford, in 1853, the original of this country village which is given over to spinsters, is undoubtedly Mutsford, 
in Cheshire, where Mrs. Gaskell had spent her childhood, the sympathy, the keen observation, and the gentle humor with which the small affairs of a country village are described make Cranford one of the most delightful stories in the English language. We are indebted to Mrs. Gaskell also for The Life of Charlotte Bronte, which is one of our best biographies. Blackmore, Richard Doddridge Blacker or 1825-1900 was a prolific writer, but he owes his fame almost entirely to one splendid novel, Lorna Doon, which was published in 1869. The scene of this fascinating romance is laid in Exmoor in the 17th century. The story abounds in romantic scenes and incidents, its descriptions of natural scenery are unsurpassed, the rhythmic language is at times almost equal to poetry, and the whole tone of the book is wholesome and refreshing. Altogether it would be hard to find a more delightful romance in any language, and it well deserves the place it has won as one of the classics of our literature. Other works of Blackmore which will repay the reader are Clara Vaughan 1864, his first novel, The Maid of Escare 1872, Springhaven 1887, Perlycross 1894, and Tales from the Telling House 1896, but none of these, though he counted them his best work, has met with the same favor as Lorna Doon, Meredith. So much does George Meredith 1828-1909 belong to our own day that it is difficult to think of him as one of the Victorian novelists. His first notable work, The Ordeal of Richard Feverell, was published in 1859, the same year as George Eliot's Adam Bede, but it was not till the publication of Diana of the Crossways in 1885, that his power as a novelist was widely recognized. He resembles Browning not only in his condensed style, packed with thought, but also in this respect, that he labored for years in obscurity, and after much of his best work was published and apparently forgotten he slowly won the leading place in English fiction. We are still too near him to speak of the permanence of his work, but a casual reading of any of his novels suggests a comparison and a contrast with George Eliot, like her. He is a realist and a psychologist, but while George Eliot uses tragedy to teach a moral lesson, Meredith depends more upon comedy, making vice not terrible but ridiculous. For the hero or heroine of her novel George Eliot invariably takes an individual, and shows in each one the play of universal moral forces. Meredith constructs a type man as a hero, and makes this type express his purpose and meaning, so his characters seldom speak naturally. As George Eliot's do, they are more like Browning's characters in packing a whole paragraph into a single sentence or an exclamation. On account of his enigmatic style and his psychology, Meredith will never be popular, but by thoughtful men and women he will probably be ranked among our greatest writers of fiction. The simplest and easiest of his novels for a beginner is The Adventures of Henry Richmond 1871. Among the best of his works, besides the two mentioned above, are Beecham's Career 1876 and The Egoist 1879, the latter island in our personal judgment. One of the strongest and most convincing novels of the Victorian age, Hardy, Thomas Hardy 1840 seems, like Meredith, to belong to the present rather than to a past age, and an interesting comparison may be drawn between these two novelists. In style, Meredith is obscure and difficult, while Hardy is direct and simple, aiming at realism in all things. Meredith makes man the most important phenomenon in the universe, and the struggles of men are brightened by the hope of victory. Hardy makes man an insignificant part of the world, struggling against powers greater than himself, sometimes against systems which he cannot reach or influence. 
sometimes against a kind of grim world spirit who delights in making human affairs go wrong. He island therefore, hardly a realist, but rather a man blinded by pessimism, and his novels, though generally powerful and sometimes fascinating, are not pleasant or wholesome reading. From the reader's viewpoint some of his earlier works, like the idyllic love story under the Greenwood Tree 1872 and A Pair of Blue Eyes 1873, are the most interesting. Hardy became noted, however, when he published Far From the Matting Crowd, a book which, when it appeared anonymously in the Cornhill Magazine 1874, was generally attributed to George Eliot, for the simple reason that no other novelist was supposed to be capable of writing it. The Return of the Native 1878 and The Woodlanders are generally regarded as Hardy's masterpieces, but to novels of our own day. Tess of the Debervilles 1891 and Jude the Obscure 1895 are better expressions of Hardy's literary art and of his gloomy philosophy. Stevenson, in pleasing contrast with Hardy is Robert Louis Stevenson 1850-1894, a brave, cheery, wholesome spirit who has made us all braver and cheerier by what he has written. Aside from their intrinsic value, Stevenson's novels are interesting in this respect, that they mark a return to the pure romanticism of Walter Scott, the novel of the 19th century had, as we have shown, a very definite purpose. It aimed not only to represent life but to correct it, and to offer a solution to pressing moral and social problems. At the end of the century Hardy's gloom in the face of modern social conditions became oppressive, and Stevenson broke away from it into that land of delightful romance in which youth finds an answer to all its questions. Problems differ, but youth is ever the same, and therefore Stevenson will probably be regarded by future generations as one of our most enduring writers, to his life, with its heroically happy struggle, first against poverty, then against physical illness. It is impossible to do justice in a short article. Even a longer biography is inadequate. For Stevenson's spirit, not the incidents of his life, is the important thing, and the spirit has no biographer. Though he had written much better work earlier, he first gained fame by his Treasure Island 1883, an absorbing story of pirates and of a hunt for buried gold. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde 1886 is a profound ethical parable, in which, however, Stevenson leaves the psychology and the minute analysis of character to his readers, and makes the story the chief thing in his novel, Kidnapped 1886, The Master of Dallantray 1889, and David Balfour 1893 are novels of adventure, giving us vivid pictures of Scotch life. Two romances left and finished by his early death in Samoa are The Weir of Hermiston and St. Ives. The latter was finished by Quiller Couch in 1897. The former is happily just as Stevenson left it, and though unfinished is generally regarded as his masterpiece. In addition to these novels, Stevenson wrote a large number of essays, the best of which are collected in Virginie Dupuyrisquet, Familiar Studies of Men and Books, and Memories and Portraits. Delightful sketches of his travels are found in An Inland Voyage 1878, Travels with a Donkey 1879, Across the Plains 1892 and The Amateur Emigrant 1894, Underwoods 1887 is an exquisite little volume of poetry, and A Child's Garden of Verses is one of the books that mothers will always keep to read to their children. In all his books Stevenson gives the impression of a man at play rather than at work, and the reader soon shares in the happy spirit of the author, because of his beautiful personality, and because of the love and admiration he awakened for himself in multitudes of readers. 
we are naturally inclined to exaggerate his importance as a writer, however that may be, a study of his works shows him to be a consummate literary artist, his style is always simple, often perfect, and both in his manner and in his matter he exercises a profound influence, on the writers of the present generation, iii, essayists of the Victorian age Thomas Babington Macaulay 1800-1859 Macaulay is one of the most typical figures of the 19th century, though not a great writer, if we compare him with Browning or Thackeray, he was more closely associated than any of his literary contemporaries with the social and political struggles of the age, while Carlyle was proclaiming the gospel of labor, and Dickens writing novels to better the condition of the poor, Macaulay went vigorously to work on what he thought to be the most important task of the hour, and by his brilliant speeches did perhaps more than any other single man to force the passage of the famous reform bill. Like many of the Elizabethans, he was a practical man of affairs rather than a literary man, and though we miss in his writings the imagination and the spiritual insight which stamp the literary genius, we have the impression always of a keen, practical, honest mind, which looks at present problems in the light of past experience. Moreover, the man himself, with his marvelous mind, his happy spirit, and his absolute integrity of character, is an inspiration to better living, life. Macaulay was born at Ruffley Temple, Leicestershire, in 1800. His father, of Scotch descent, was at one time governor of the Sierra Leone colony for liberated Negroes, and devoted a large part of his life to the abolition of the slave trade. His mother, of Quaker parentage, was a brilliant, sensitive woman, whose character is reflected in that of her son. The influence of these two, and the son's loyal devotion to his family, can best be read in Trevelyan's interesting biography. As a child, Macaulay is strongly suggestive of Coleridge. At three years of age he began to read eagerly, at five he talked like a book, at ten he had written a compendium of universal history, besides various hymns, verse romances, arguments for Christianity, and one ambitious epic poem, The Habit of Rapid Reading, begun in childhood, continued throughout his life and the number and variety of books which he read is almost incredible. His memory was phenomenal. He could repeat long poems and essays after a single reading, he could quote not only passages but the greater part of many books, including Pilgrim's Progress, Paradise Lost, and various novels like Clarissa. Once, to test his memory, he recited two newspaper poems which he had read in a coffee house 40 years before, and which he had never thought of in the interval. At 12 years of age this remarkable boy was sent to a private school at Little Shelford, and at 18 he echoed Trinity College, Cambridge. Here he made a reputation as a classical scholar and a brilliant talker, but made a failure of his mathematics. In a letter to his mother he wrote, Oh for words to express my abomination of that science, discipline of the mind, say rather starvation, confinement, torture, annihilation. We quote this as a commentary on Macaulay's later writings, which are frequently lacking in the exactness and the logical sequence of the science which he detested. After his college course Macaulay studied law, was admitted to the bar, devoted himself largely to politics, entered Parliament in 1830, and almost immediately won a reputation as the best debater and the most eloquent speaker, of the Liberal or Whig Party, Gladstone says of him. Whenever he arose to speak it was a summons like a trumpet call to fill the benches. At the time of his election he was poor, and the loss of his father's property threw upon him the support of his brothers and sisters, 
but he took up the burden with cheerful courage, and by his own efforts soon placed himself and his family in comfort. His political progress was rapid, and was due not to favoritism or intrigue, but to his ability, his hard work, and his sterling character. He was several times elected to Parliament, was legal advisor to the Supreme Council of India, was a member of the Cabinet, and declined many offices for which other men labor a lifetime. In 1857 his great ability and services to his country were recognized by his being raised to the peerage with the title of Baron Macaulay of Ruffley. Macaulay's literary work began in college with the contribution of various ballads and essays to the magazines. In his later life practical affairs claimed the greater part of his time, and his brilliant essays were written in the early morning or late at night. His famous essay on Milton appeared in the Edinburgh Review in 1825. It created a sensation, and Macaulay, having gained the ear of the public, never once lost it during the twenty years in which he was a contributor to the magazines. His Lays of Ancient Rome appeared in 1842, and in the following year three volumes of his collected essays. In 1847 he lost his seat in Parliament, temporarily, through his zealous efforts in behalf of religious toleration, and the loss was most fortunate, since it gave him opportunity to begin his history of England a monumental work which he had been planning for many years. The first two volumes appeared in 1848, and their success can be compared only to that of the most popular novels. The third and fourth volumes of the history 1855 were even more successful, and Macaulay was hard at work on the remaining volumes when he died. Quite suddenly, in 1859, he was buried, near Addison, in the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey. A paragraph from one of his letters, written at the height of his fame and influence, may give us an insight into his life and work, I can truly say that I have not, for many years, been so happy as I am at present, I am free, I am independent, I am in Parliament, as honorably seated as man can be, my family is comfortably off, I have leisure for literature, yet I am not reduced to the necessity of writing for money. If I had to choose a lot from all that there are in human life, I am not sure that I should prefer any to that which has fallen to me. I am sincerely and thoroughly contented. Works of Macaulay. Macaulay is famous in literature for his essays, for his martial ballads, and for his history of England. His first important work, the essay on Milton 1825, is worthy of study not only for itself, as a critical estimate of the Puritan poet, but as a key to all Macaulay's writings, here, first of all, is an interesting work, which, however much we differ from the author's opinion, holds our attention and generally makes us regret that the end comes so soon. The second thing to note is the historical flavor of the essay. We study not only Milton, but also the times in which he lived, and the great movements of which he was a part. History and literature properly belong together and Macaulay was one of the first writers to explain the historical conditions which partly account for a writer's work and influence. The third thing to note is Macaulay's enthusiasm for his subject, an enthusiasm which is often partisan, but which we gladly share for the moment as we follow the breathless narrative. Macaulay generally makes a hero of his man, shows him battling against odds, and the heroic side of our own nature awakens and responds to the author's plea. The fourth, and perhaps most characteristic thing in the essay is the style, which is remarkably clear, forceful, and convincing. Jeffrey, the editor of the Edinburgh Review, wrote enthusiastically when he received the manuscript, 
the more I think, the less I can conceive where you picked up that style. We still share in the editor's wonder, but the more we think, the less we conceive that such a style could be picked up. It was partly the result of a well-stored mind, partly of unconscious imitation of other writers, and partly of that natural talent for clear speaking and writing which is manifest in all Macaulay's work. In the remaining essays we find the same general qualities which characterize Macaulay's first attempt. They cover a wide range of subjects, but they may be divided into two general classes, the literary or critical, and the historical. Of the literary essays the best are those on Milton, Addison, Goldsmith, Byron, Dryden, Lee Hunt, Bunyan, Bacon, and Johnson. Among the best known of the historical essays are those on Lord Clive, Chatham, Warren Hastings, Hallam's Constitutional History, Von Ranke's History of the Papacy, Frederick the Great, Horace Walpole, William Pitt, Sir William Temple, Machiavelli, and Mirabeau. Most of these were produced in the vigor of young manhood, between 1825 and 1845, while the writer was busy with practical affairs of state. They are often one-sided and inaccurate, but all was interesting and from them a large number of busy people have derived their first knowledge of history and literature. The best of Macaulay's poetical work is found in the Lays of Ancient Rome 1842, a collection of ballads in the style of Scott, which sing of the old heroic days of the Rome Roman Republic. The ballad does not require much thought or emotion. It demands clearness, vigor, enthusiasm, action, and it suited Macaulay's genius perfectly. He was, however, much more careful than other ballad writers in making his narrative true to tradition. The stirring martial spirit of these ballads, their fine workmanship, and their appeal to courage and patriotism made them instantly popular. Even today, after more than 50 years, such ballads as those on Virginius and Horatius at the Bridge are favorite pieces in many school readers. The History of England, Macaulay's Masterpiece, is still one of the most popular historical works in the English language. Originally it was intended to cover the period from the accession of James I.I. in 1685, to the death of George I.D. in 1830. Only five volumes of the work were finished, and so thoroughly did Macaulay go into details that these five volumes cover only 16 years. It has been estimated that to complete the work on the same scale would require some 50 volumes and the labor of one man for over a century. In his historical method Macaulay suggests given. His own knowledge of history was very great, but before writing he read numberless pages, consulted original documents, and visited the scenes which he intended to describe. Thackeray's remark, that, Macaulay reads twenty books to write a sentence and travels one hundred miles to make a line of description, island in view of his industry, a well-warranted exaggeration, as in his literary essays, he is fond of making heroes and he throws himself so heartily into the spirit of the scene he is describing that his word pictures almost startle us by their vivid reality. The story of Monmouth's Rebellion, for instance, or the trial of the seven bishops, is as fascinating as the best chapters of Scott's historical novels, while Macaulay's search for original sources of information suggests the scientific historian. His use of his material is much more like that of a novelist or playwright. In his essay on Machiavelli he writes, the best portraits are perhaps those in which there is a slight mixture of caricature, and we are not certain that the best histories are not those in which a little of the exaggeration of fictitious narrative is judiciously employed. Something is lost in accuracy, but much is gained in effect. 
whether this estimate of historical writing be true or false. Macaulay employed it in his own work and made his narrative as absorbing as a novel. To all his characters he gives the reality of flesh and blood, and in his own words he shows us over their houses and seats us at their tables. All that is excellent, but it has its disadvantages. In his admiration for heroism, Macaulay makes some of his characters too good and others too bad. In his zeal, 